This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 472nd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, THR's executive editor of awards coverage, and my guest today is one of the most admired stage and screen actresses of her generation. A four-time Oscar nominee, a Tony nominee, an Emmy winner, and a two-time Golden Globe winner, she broke into the public eye in her teens as Jen Lindley on the WB's teen drama TV series, Dawson's Creek on which she appeared from 1998 through 2003, en route to proving her tremendous abilities in films like 2005's Brokeback Mountain, 2008's Wendy and Lucy, 2010's Blue Valentine, 2011's My Week with Marilyn, 2016's Manchester by the Sea, and 2017's The Greatest Showman. On Broadway in 2014's Cabaret and 2016's Blackbird, and on TV in the 2019 limited series Fosse Vernon. I'm talking, of course, about Michelle Williams. In 2022, Williams shined as brightly as ever in Steven Spielberg's autobiographical film The Fablemans, playing Mitzi Fableman, a thinly disguised version of Spielberg's own mother, the late Leah Adler, opposite Paul Dano, Seth Rogen, and Gabriel LaBelle. Spielberg has said that her performance made him feel like he had his mother back again, and as someone who had the pleasure of meeting his mother at the Milky Way, the West L.A. kosher restaurant that she ran in her later years, I can totally see why. Williams nails Adler's physical appearance, manner of speaking, and unmistakable joie de vivre. And this season, Williams has already received a special tribute at the Gotham Awards and was nominated for the Best Actress in a Drama Golden Globe Award. And she is nominated for the Best Actress Critics' Choice Award, with the Best Actress Oscar nomination likely to follow. Over the course of our conversation at the Hotel Bel Air, the 42-year-old and I discussed the pros and cons of her years as a child actor emancipated from her parents, the period of grief that she experienced following the sudden death of Heath Ledger, her co-star in Brokeback Mountain and the father of her oldest child in 2008, and the degree to which it made her consider walking away from acting? What led her to pursue naturalism in her early performances, but more recently to embrace expressionistic work? Why she had a harder time saying goodbye to her character from The Fablemans than any other that she has played? Plus, much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Michelle, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Um, Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. Always begin on this podcast with the very basics. Can you share where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living? I was born in Kalispell, Montana. My mother is a homemaker and my father traded the commodities markets. Okay. So you were popping up on TV on things like Baywatch, I saw at 13. My first job. First job, Lassie, 14. This is all obviously pre-Dawson's Creek. So I guess just to set the stage, like what first even appealed to you about acting? Do you remember? You know, the the first experience that I had thinking, what is this? What are these people doing? I would like to go live with them was when I saw my first play and it was a children's theater production of... Gosh, now actually I can't even remember if it was Tom Sawyer or Annie, one or the other. And I remember gripping onto the sides of my seat because it felt like it was going to take off. I was so thrilled to see these people performing in front of me, for me, up on a stage. And it really stuck with me. And then at some point, we were living in San Diego then, and there was a wave of kids that would leave school, get in minivans and go up to Los Angeles for cattle calls. I don't know if they still use that term now, probably not. And somehow I became one of them. I don't really know how or why. I I didn't have a 
burning passion. I wasn't identified as being talented. I just became one of those kids in the backseat of a minivan. And this is like Oakwood Apartments during pilot season or what are we talking about? No, this is still living in San Diego and being pulled out of school to drive two and a half hours for a Fritos commercial audition, going to the mall, getting some cookies and driving back home. And that to you at that time felt exciting or a duty or how would you describe The cookies were so delicious. <laughs> Made it worth it. Every time I drive past the Galleria in Sherman Oaks, my <laughs> mouth kind of waters for these mini cookies that came in a paper bag. Got it. Well, so what led to the decision, which you've talked about often, I guess at 15, I'm going to get legally emancipated from my parents so that you can focus on doing this now seriously or unrelated reasons or just what would, that's a big decision for a 15 year old. I've never been the kind of person who really thinks decisions through. I kind of, <laughs> I kind of leap and then find out midair where I'm going to land. It was, again, there were other children that were making this decision, although it, it is kind of a decision that you have to make with your family. So it's, there's a lot of factors that go into deciding whether a child can be emancipated or not. It was posed as an option because it encouraged people to hire you because they no longer had to pay for a welfare worker, a tutor, and you could work full adult hours hmm. at a very young age. Yes. Um, I wouldn't, this is not a recommendation <laughs> I was gonna for ask. emancipating your children. Well, so in hindsight... Was it the right decision to make? Now it is because it turned out okay. And right. here I am sitting across from you talking about a very long career. Yes. But certainly at moments along the way, it was not the right decision. And, and actually, I guess to that point, I think when we, I think this was a previous interview years ago that we did, I was looking back at, there was something where you said, quote, there are some really disgusting people in the world. And I met some of them, close quote, during that transitionary period, I guess, en route to Dawson's Creek. Like I, you know, I've said before, my first agent was also an undertaker. So, um, you know, the, the people that I met and worked with and spent time with are very different from the people that I meet and spend time with now. So, and I, I don't know what it's, I don't know what it's like now or how you get a break now or how you get a start or what the industry is like when you're first sort of getting your foot in the door. But in the early 90s, <laughs> it was full of uh, unsavory types. Mm. So there wasn't that long period, I guess, before you then get Dawson's Creek, which required... Yes, thankfully, right? <laughs> thankfully I was airlifted out of this city and uh, these situations, mm. and I wound up in North Carolina. And... Just to remind anyone whose memories may have faded or weren't around lucky enough to watch this in real time, Jen Lindley, a uh, sort of troubled youth on the show Dawson's Creek from 1998 to 2003. You were 16 when you started, I think the youngest of all the principal cast. And I guess just do you remember since it was such a big turning point for you, how it came about and what the most important takeaways of doing that were. I know that you guys were pumping out 22 to 24 episodes a season, which is now sounds inhumane. Right. Um, six seasons, 12 pages a day, you were saying. Like, this is... And it was an hour-long show. An hour-long show. Yeah. So how did it start? What was the most valuable part of it? So it started, I auditioned for it when I was living in Los Angeles. I remember meeting Kevin Williamson for the first time. And when we went out there to film it, it was just a pilot episode. And we shot the pilot and then came back and it became a sensation. And we all grew up together and spent nine months a year in this quiet southern town. Still, I feel I feel like I've sort of had three childhoods, one in Montana, one in San Diego, and one in North Carolina. And sometimes my Southern accent comes out, like a <laughs> glass of wine or two, and all of a sudden, you know, where, I'm, where I was from in my third childhood. Right. Uh, and 
it was a great training ground, first of all, professionally, to learn how to handle a lot of material, to learn things that I really didn't have much experience with, how to hit a mark without looking at it, to turn your face towards the light rather than away <laughs> from it, and to also learn how to be responsible. I was 16 years old and I didn't have a guardian with me. So I was in charge of getting myself to work on time. I was in charge of dental visits and mm -hmm. doctor appointments and uh, keeping the fridge stocked with food. And it really, I, I learned how to become an adult. And, you know, other, other actors who were on the show at the time have talked about how lucky we feel that we came of age in an area without, in an era without social media, mm -hmm. because we could be kids and we could make mistakes in a safe place. And we really did have the, the protection and community of a crew who recognized that we were pretty young mm -hmm. and they put kind of bumpers around us and living in a small Southern town and having the advantage of being pre-social media we could be kids. Mm -hmm. And you also just recently, while accepting a career tribute already from the Gotham Awards, acknowledged that the actress who played your grandmother on that show, Mary Beth Peel, uh, was really, in hindsight, maybe more than even in the moment, maybe you didn't realize it as much in the moment, a very important, what, role model, mentor, what would you say? Everything to me, really everything to me. She was an inspiration. She was a guiding light. She was a, a shoulder to cry on. She was a confidant, a compatriot. We would, I could stay at her apartment in New York. She would take me to go see theater. And we would talk about it in between takes while we were in North Carolina, sitting in these director's chair, re reading, reading plays, listening to her stories. She told me about seeing Wally Shawn plays. And I got so excited about this place, New York City. And it really, I did my first play because of her. She gave me the courage to go do my first play. And I always remember her in our personal life. Whenever something good happens to me, I reach out to her and make sure that she knows that even though a lot of time has elapsed, my feelings about our relationship have not changed. That's great. Now, I guess you did have those other three months of the year when you're not doing Dawson's Creek and you could have, I don't know, just slept in or done what a lot of teenagers would do on their summer break. But I guess what was it that was motivating you to go? And I think in those periods, that's when there were, you first started really in Indies. That's Dick in 1999, all the way through, let's say, Station Agent, um, 2002. Uh, I think there was like a three-picture deal with Merrimax at that time. Just why was it, was it important to you to have a film career on top of TV? Or was that someone saying this would be the smart move, you know? No, it was really important to me. I wanted to make films. I wanted to try plays. I did a movie then while I was on Dawson's Creek called Me Without You. And I was going back and forth between the UK and North Carolina. And on Dawson's Creek, they let me dye my hair brown. And so I could wear a blonde wig when I came back to be Jen. So I was, I was trying. I was auditioning. I was occasionally getting things mm -hmm. and, and always working. And it's interesting because you never know the value, I guess, of or the legacy of something until years later. I believe both Sam Mendes with Cabaret and Charlie Kaufman with Synecdoche, New York, both said that it was Dick that first put you on their radar. Oh, really? Radar. I know that about Charlie Kaufman. Yeah, he's, I couldn't figure out why. Why does this genius <laughs> want to meet me? And he said it was Dick. <laughs> well, so I guess if there was a fork in the road, at some point where your career could have gone in two different directions, you're 18 and you have two simultaneous offers, right? Do you remember what the decision was at that point? I just remember being offered this really wild play off Broadway called Killer Joe. And I auditioned for it and did a work session with Wilson Milam. And he had me doing all kinds of crazy stuff that wasn't actually the material, I suppose, just to see if I had flexibility and if I could take direction. And 
I think even then making departures from what I had done previously really appealed to me. So making things that felt different from each other and really learning. I did not go to school. I I stopped any kind of formal education when I was 15 or 16 years old. So the feeling of, of improvement, learning, gaining knowledge to knowledge, I really needed that. And I think you only get that by trying new things. But it's interesting that you had enough, you know, self-awareness, self-possession to make that decision because the other, when I say a fork in the road, I guess it was at that exact same time where you're offered, it's like a, what, a studio movie, gun-toting cheerleaders or something. I don't even remember what it was, but it was just, it was a choice between, it was also a kind of lifestyle. I really, I was so drawn to New York City. I wanted to make it my home. I felt like I belonged there, even though I was so intimidated by it. I only walked about a 10 block radius, <laughs> but those 10 blocks felt like where I belonged. Right. And and I wanted to put down roots somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that choice was to make Killer Joe and to see if I could belong. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about the legacy of projects, I guess... Same with Station Agent, because that's what A.V. Kaufman saw that led her to think of you for Brokeback. Is that right? Gosh, is it? I don't know. That's what I've read, and I, or at least to recommend you to Aang for Brokeback. And I guess at that, up to that point in film, had you played as kind of mature a character as oh, no. nobody, right? For oh, no. Bro- pre Brokeback. Oh, no. No, I mean, I had done Me Without You, in which I played multiple ages and I had an accent. It was a complicated part. I was, uh, it that was a big deal for me, but Brokeback was another league altogether. And when, when the prospect of even being part of it first came about, did you realize, did it seem like a very big deal? I mean, Ang Lee was oh, yes. already a, yeah. Oh yes. I, I knew, well, you got to read the whole script. Mm-hmm. So I know exactly what it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. On this podcast, we had Jake at one point, and he said that there were other pairings that were considered at one point, but for the parts of Ennis and Jack. Did you ever read opposite anyone except? I never read opposite anyone. Never No, I I only auditioned with Aang. Okay. And so I guess when you think back to the making of that, the experience and all of it, just how quickly did it become apparent to you that this was something unusual, maybe more special than your average project? Well, you know, Aang at that, at that point already carried with him an enormous body of work. And so that meant this was destined to be special because of the artist that he was and still is. And so that required a lot of serious preparation and uh, an appropriate amount of nervousness. And then when you saw the performances coming out of these two young men, it was a very special thing to witness. For you, was there a moment, a scene, something where, I guess, even in the moment... It felt like it was clicking on all cylinders because aside from the great performances of the young men, people really responded to your performance in a way that was different than anything up to that point, right? So for you, did it feel like you were you were doing something kind of special in the moment? I don't I don't recall that feeling necessarily, I think. And you knew them, you knew the level of the material that you were working on and you knew the level of the actors that you were performing with, but it's very hard to say exactly what your place is in all of that because you're, you know, acting is an inside job. So you're, you're trying to stay, you know, you don't want to be standing in judgment of the thing. You really just want to be in response to the people that you're performing with and the material itself. So I don't think that I had an inkling of what was to come until people started to react after 
the first screenings. Mm-hmm. And obviously a big hit with critics, with moviegoers, with the Academy. But it also, I mean, for for somebody who wasn't around it just even, you know, whatever, seven, 18 years ago, it's cr- kind of crazy how much society has changed with regard to yeah. LGBT issues. I mean, that was a scandalous movie. Can you quite wrap your head around the fact that you know, a lot of people credit Brokeback as being part of that change, helping to rev it on. When you sort of stop and look at how much things have changed, what do you make of that? It gives me hope for the next 18 years. You know, I can't wait to see how much progress we make that feels difficult or unthinkable or impossible or daunting right now. But when you look back 15 years ago, 17 years ago, you can see, well, we get there. Mm-hmm. And so after the broke back experience and the Oscar nomination and all that, I would imagine that you had a wider range of opportunities than ever before up to that point. And rather than in any way, again, trying to cash in or what a lot of people might do, you know, strike while the iron's hot is what is often said. There was just this run of movies, often kind of art house with auteurs. I'm going to just mention a few, if you have any, thing you that immediately comes to mind about the movie or the experience. But 2007, Todd Haynes, I'm not there. 2008, I mentioned earlier, Synecdoche, New York, Charlie Kaufman. And then also in 2008 was the beginning of, I think, your most frequent or your most, your collaboration that's been revisited most frequently with Kelly Reichert. And that was with Wendy and Lucy, which was sort of timed amazingly in a weird way because we were hitting the recession, right, in America. So just anything about those generally, but specifically, I guess, Kelly, because she she and you are going to come up numerous more times. Um, yeah, great. I mean, you know, that, that, that kind of work is really just my heart laid bare. That's very much who I am and, 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 and exactly what I want, not a rung on a ladder. That movie is so special to me because it, it was the beginning of a very beautiful friendship. And, you know, I knew, I, I saw this movie that she had made and I don't, I wasn't a, I, the casting director had sent it to me, Old Joy. And I thought that's, this is the place for me. These are the worlds that I want to learn and understand how to populate. And Wendy and Lucy was a crew of less than 10 people made for, I'm not even sure I'd be making it up, but, you know, a nominal amount of Mm. money. And because of Kelly's undeniable singular artistry, it broke through. And her work continues to in an unparalleled way. We were at Cannes this year Mm. with the last movie that we made, and she is carried around on their shoulders, and they dedicated a day to her there. It's really thrilling to see in my lifetime my most frequent collaborator received like this. Yeah. And we'll just note, so it's Wendy and Lucy in 2008, Meek's cut off in 2010, which you said when you were, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but getting a return invite was a very big deal, right? So we'll come back to that. But Meek's cut off in 2010, Certain Women 2016, and showing up this past year, 2022, you have said, quote, hers are the only movies that I'm in that I can watch and forget that it's me because I get so absorbed by the filmmaking and the storytelling, close quote. And you don't even really, you don't watch too many of your movies, period, right? I don't. It's It hasn't been helpful for me. Again, I really want to stay inside the experiences that I'm having as I'm living as that character. And when I step outside of it, the information that I find there doesn't serve me. So I have chosen for the moment anyway to stay on the inside. I keep experimenting and trying to watch what I do to see if there's something that will be useful, if I can become a tinkerer and take something, a little tool into the next thing that I'm lucky enough to work on. But for whatever reason, I'm just not there yet. So once the movie is over, that is, that's what seals the experience for me. There was a 
interview recently, I think in the New York Times, where you were talking about the Kelly type movies versus some of the stuff that I think starting with Broadway stuff that we'll come to, you know, obviously very different. I guess the naturalism versus stylized expressionistic stuff. What was it that, and what maybe is it that appeals to you about the former? Let's talk about first. Like when you're doing, what is it when about the way that you work when you're doing, say, one of these Kelly movies that, you know, I guess you're really digging into your own, you're laying bare your own stuff to play those characters or what is it? I think there's just, there's a simplicity, there's a peeling back while still maintaining a life force inside of a, inside of a person. And what I, and that took me a long time to get to. That was a decade of concerted effort to be able to serve that kind of filmmaker and inhabit that kind of world. And then I saw something else outside of that. I was looking, I was in seeing other performances. I thought there's something else that I want to reach for and I, I can't touch it yet. And it has its roots in the theater for sure, because your lens when you're in a theater audience is full body and it is continuous. So I wanted to be able to sustain something throughout my body, throughout a period of time. I wanted to last longer than a take. I wanted to run something through my fingertips. I, and I didn't know how, mm-hmm. but I have, because I've been working since I was, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, any training that I'm going to do is going to be on the job. Yeah. So I started taking work that would help me. Mm-hmm that would teach me hmm. and that regardless of outcome would give me experience and a kind of, you know, training. Mm-hmm. So I started doing musicals. Mm-hmm. I spent a year on Broadway doing cabaret. I was lucky to see that. And yeah. <laughs> thank you. And, bla- and, uh, Black and Blackbird. Yes. And Blackbird. And and I started taking on roles that were huge challenges for me, like Marilyn. Yeah. Well, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves yet chronologically because I guess that a big thing in terms of that, the more naturalistic style would have been, or I don't know how you would describe it, but Blue Valentine seems like that was a whole experiment in, or the maybe as deep a dive as you can do into that type of acting. I remember hearing you guys talk about, and uh, at the time that I guess it was something you'd been aware of for a long time, even before that. Yeah. Oh, I wanted this so badly. Yeah, please tell me why. Oh, I wanted this part so badly. I was on fire for this (laughs) for years before we got to make it. The script just struck a chord in me and I could not let it go. Everything, for a few years in my life, everything I saw, read, listened to, related to me to this script. (laughs) And I made no apologies Mm -hmm. in how fervently I longed for this. And Derek, the director, and I would go on walks and I would... Just tell him what it meant to me. And, you know, Ryan and I both hung in long enough and there we were making this movie all of a sudden in this very unusual and fabulous way, which was immersive. And we would, Derek set up these fabulous games for us to play as a family. We would have to take our daughter to a family fun park after having just picked a fight with each other in our kitchen. We had to make a family budget. We had to decorate the family Christmas tree. We had to make breakfast while he was fixing the kitchen sink. I can't tell you how invaluable these kinds of experiences are when you come to film a scene, even if those rehearsals aren't scripted, 
but it builds memories. It builds a character's memory bank. So, and we spent weeks like this. And Staying then... in character, basically, right? Yeah, basically. And then it, the movie is in two sections, when they're young and in love and when they're older and fractured. Mm-hmm. And in between these two sections, we had a two-week break. And we burned our wedding photo mm-hmm. and we learned how to make space and build the divide between our characters. Was that movie in a way a sort of renewal of vows or something with acting in a sense because I there was a period just shortly before that came out you had been in Shutter Island I think but it had been shot well before with Scorsese but you had taken some time off very understandably but I I think you said that paparazzi people were not giving you any kind of space. There was a thing, quote, I'll never forget going to the post office and seeing a sign hung on the wall for anyone with information about myself and my daughter to please call this number. So I took that down, uh, close quote. But was there ever a question of whether you're going to come back to acting? Well, I felt scared and small and vulnerable. And those aren't actually great places to make work from. But what Derek did, so actually when it came time to make the movie, when they finally had this funding together and he called me and he said, here we go, it's happening. I kind of to my own surprise said no, because it was going to be, it was a seaside movie. It was set by the sea in California. And I had to decline in hysterics. I said, I just am not able to, to go there. Like we, my daughter and I have a life upstate New York and it's really important to me and I'm trying to rebuild something and I have to let this go. Mm-hmm. And then I can't really remember how much time passed, but he called back and said, okay, we'll come to you. And they reframed this movie and we shot it essentially upstate New York um, my daughter could stay in school, we could stay in our home, and Derek made it work. And if he hadn't, it might have been even, you know, longer before you were willing to dip your toe back into acting. Uh, yeah, I think so. He, both, he, you know, he and Ryan, because it meant Ryan had to relo- relocate also, and and I think they understood my position, and they're both incredibly dear sensitive, thoughtful men, and they changed their lives to accommodate mine and my daughter's. Well, I think everyone can appreciate, can be thankful for that because that is as great a performance as, uh, I think any, and, and, um, do you think people saw you differently in a way after that movie where you, in which you and Ryan, you know, it's a rawness in every respect, right? It's a, it just feels like you'd grown a lot, even just since, let's say, broke back five years earlier. Was that your, did you feel that the industry thought of you for different things after that? Gosh, I can't really even remember what came after that. I, when I was 30, I played Marilyn. Right. And so that's always kind of the signpost that I use for a kind of turning point in my career. And I guess, so, right. And that was the year after, but I guess. Oh, I think I went from, I actually went from Blue Valentine to go make Meek's Cutoff. Right. I remember that because I was starting to learn how to use a (laughs) gun. (laughs) Right. And then I guess take this waltz. And then take this waltz, right. And then Marilyn. So, I mean, whose idea was it that you might be Marilyn? Was that something? That was all Simon Curtis. That was 100% the director. Um, I he, he came to meet me. He came to our home upstate New York and said, you're the one for me. And it completely mystified me <laughs> and totally terrified me. But I thought, there's learning here. And that is ultimately what I want. Because while I risk failure and embarrassment, if I can come out with 
new tools, then I can keep going in this work. This work is what supports my life. Mm -hmm. I have to get better at it if I'm going to keep doing it. So I foolishly said yes. <laughs> well, what was the most intimidating part? Oh, every single thing. I I cried on the way to work. I cried on the way home from work. I cried in my trailer. It was excruciatingly difficult. Because is part of that that I don't know if prior to that, I'm trying to think if you had ever played a real person who who people knew, let alone one of the most iconic people ever. Is it a matter of worrying that people are going to, you know, just how you, you compare you in different ways to her? Or what was, what do you think made you cry? He was just, it was, she was ahead of me. You know, she, to play a role like that, like I was not essentially ready for it. I had, as if, you know, I had to get this on the job training. So you are, you are learning while you're performing and you have to hope that you learn enough and that you assimilate that quickly enough that you can bring it into the performance and that it's going to be useful and ready and available for you. And I, it, it introduced me to a whole new way of working though. This really uh, bodily, I would almost say, you know, the, the, the American style is very much inside out. It's rooted in method. It's rooted in naturalism. And there's a British way that is outside in. And I think that having these, having access to both has been invaluable for me and is really kind of the place where I'm, you know, hoping to make work from now, which is I can, utilize both. And so uh, what they did give me on Maryland were teachers. So I had a movement teacher because my bodily habits and resting positions and gait are so far from Maryland. So they had me work with this incredible teacher, Jane Gibson, and we spent every day together re-breaking my body and rebuilding me in her image. And it was my first time doing that. And so your first time of anything is painful and confusing and you don't, it's learning a new language. But when you get those incremental itsy bitty bitty gains, they're, they're addictive because you can feel just a little more freedom and a little more relaxation. And when you get a taste of it, you want all of it. And so from, from then that I've really stayed in that kind of lineage of work and teachings. And I've sought out more things in my life that are movement based. And I guess you, I think at one point you said the key discovery prepping for that, or one of them was she was playing a character, right? So this is a person playing something like if you woke up Marilyn Monroe in the middle of the night and said, there's, you know, needs to talk to you or something. That's not the person that we knew was not who she really was. She invented herself. She was a genius of invention and she made the greatest movie star, the most beloved movie star of all time. Uh, and so there was a, you know, there was a, a, a private person and there was a public person. And I think one of the most interesting things about Marilyn is when those two stand side by side and when you see the public turn into the personal. And I just will remind people, I mean, you got great reviews from a lot of places, but one of them that I think you can't beat is her last surviving leading man. Yes. Bob Murray. Yes. If you remember, yes, um, was quite a fan of the performance. Yes. But that, I guess does lead into what you had talked about earlier with the, you know, the kinds of more physical and outwardly expressive stylized characters because Sally Bowles is April 2014 to March 2015. Eight shows a week, was that for a, over a year? Yeah, a year from start of rehearsals 
think I actually started in January and ended in November, so 11 months. 11 months, okay. That was you again seeking out that kind of a part? I knew it was going to destroy me, but I knew <laughs> I was going to walk out the other end better at yeah. what I do. And that, again, is the only thing that matters to me because it is the only thing that is truly going to give me longevity. And it was pretty quick turnaround I don't think even a full year between the end of that and another very different physically grueling one with Blackbird, which 90 minutes, one act, uh, long monologues, physically, uh, very physical, right? And emotional part of a woman confronting this older guy who Jeff Daniels plays, uh, who had abused her when she was a kid. I guess we've just said how punishing... Broadway can be with Cabaret. Why did you go right back into it? It's an irresistible piece of material. It's an incredible role with an incredible six and a half page monologue at the spine of the play. And when you spend such a long time working, you know, that year that I spent on Cabaret, you kind of want to take that work immediately into another work that relates it because it means that the energetic force is still fresh and the knowledge is available. And so while your body is burned out, you know that to create a further gain, you have to keep going and really build while it's fresh in your mind. So back I went. Yeah. Both. I was lucky enough to see it. It was terrific. And um, the same year as Blackbird was... Manchester by the Sea. Right. Not another, not particularly light material uh, subject matter, but um, great as well. And actually first, I think, was Certain Women mm-hmm. and then Manchester by the Sea. But, you know, what's interesting, um, one of the things that I find uh, kind of mind-blowing when I look back at Manchester by the Sea, I think you're in it for like 11 minutes. Yeah. But it feels like so much more because the relationship hovers over the whole thing and the the grieving and the rawness, particularly that scene where you guys run into each other. I just wonder of that scene in particular, which I think w- where, you know, after a period of not seeing each other, they, they, your and Casey's character bump into each other. Was that scripted, improvised, what? Because that was one, the, the moment I think more than any other that impacted people from your performance in that one. Kenny's dialogue is so thoroughly researched. He said that what he does is he says, he says, he says everything. He acts out all of the characters before he turns a script in, which is how he knows what they should, exactly what they should be saying. There's no improvisation in one of his scripts. It feels like it because that's the the style in which he writes, but he also has this ineffable quality of being able to make dialogue feel as though it's been improvised. But underneath it, there is a, the themes of the film are so strong that on the surface, it looks ordinary, but something very powerful is happening at the same time, which is why when people leave the theaters after his movies, they're so gobsmacked. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's a, he's a holy writer. Mm -hmm. Going from a project like that scale to, I think you had, in 2013 was, I think, the first time it's like mega-sized project with Oz. Great oh, powerful. yeah, that, that was, was a little so before, fun. Right. Yeah, that was a, I wish I could go back and do that all over again. My daughter was young. It was something I so excited to make with her for her. She was around all the time. She got to go on the yellow brick road. Like it was, that was a really fabulous time in our lives. Well, I bring it up only because it's not often that you've done these big, you know, large scale studio movies, but then in 2017 after Manchester, I think there were two that were pretty sizable greatest showmen, which became this whole very unusual phenomenon where a movie actually makes more money each weekend after it's like, that was a movie that, uh, you know, you could study. And then also in that same year, all the money in the world, which I think both of these were just of a different scale than you were accustomed to. Right. Was that some way you like intimidated by things that are large scale? I was intimidated by things that were large scale. I didn't feel like I could withstand the force of them. 
And I remember when I walked onto set for the first day of Oz and there were monitors everywhere. And the feeling that this performance wasn't going to be private and that there would be lots of eyes watching and having an opinion was very overwhelming for me and something that I had to genuinely work through. So it's a something I've had to, I've wanted to try to experience to gain confidence and relaxation and all of that in this, you know, bigger sphere. So there's a lot of challenge for me in making those kinds of movies. Is what you do different? Or is it just the feeling of everything that's around you that's different? It's not. I don't think that what I do is different, but it's the feeling of of eyes watching and that there's a, because it's a bigger production, there's a bigger risk. And so there's a bigger opportunity to sort of fail on a large scale. You know, making these movies with Kelly feels like you're working within the context of family and maybe only the people in your family will ever see the film. <laughs> and the New York Film Festival. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so it seems like in recent years when you've been given an opportunity to a pu- kind of a big public platform and part of this I think was after Fosse Verdon, which we'll come to in a second, but like you've chosen to be more outspoken about whether it's like Me Too stuff or pay equity, inequity or different stuff. I just wonder if there was something that maybe changed in you when, I mean, for a lot of people, I think it changed. But when all this, you know, starting with Harvey and then everything after in 2017 onwards, you know, then you were also, I guess, thinking back with there was the stuff even with all the money in the world where it almost destroyed this movie based on what happened there. Then there was the pay equity on that issue, on that movie as well. I guess just, do you, you know, do you think you were changed by being so close to so much of the bad stuff that had, that began to come out? Well, I think we all were, which is, you know, what Me Too really brought to light is that we were all connected by our experiences. And we had all been separated by our experiences and put into, you know, dark rooms by our experiences. And Tarana Burke, she broke the locks off. And all of a sudden, you know, women could come together, share with each other, heal with each other, support each other, help each other. It was uh, an incredible thing to be a part of. And as far as becoming more outspoken, you know, it's hard to not speak out. It just seemed like the most obvious thing in the world. It did not strike me ever that there was another option. I found myself at the center of this situation. I saw no other option than to speak directly and personally about it. And again, I've always had a kind of jump off and then figure out where you're going to land on the way down part of my personality. And so, uh, that I, I stepped into it without really thinking about pitfalls or anything. I really like to go with my first impulse. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, I think you were, there was no backlash was there for doing it. You were pretty, Well, here's the thing. I mean, you can't, Pay inequality is not a difficult subject to talk about. It's not partisan (laughs) and you can't really disagree with it. Right. A woman's right to choose, however, (laughs) (laughs) is less popular. Yeah. (laughs) Well, anyway, that was, no, it was, uh, it's been interesting though, you you know, just with each one of these crazy things that have rocked the industry, you've been pretty, you've had a front row seat for better or worse, but all right. Fosse Verdon. So great. This is an eight part limited series, 2019. And, um, I wonder, I guess I was going to say, it's like your first time doing TV since Dawson's Creek. But the truth is 
it's like a totally different world in TV, right? Yes. That's what they were telling me. (laughs) (laughs) That's why you were willing to entertain it. Yes. They said it's not a long contract. Uh, People, you know, lots of interesting content being created on television now. And for me, I have always been looking for jobs that keep me at home in New York City. We moved from the country back to Brooklyn at a certain point in my daughter's life. And uh, she has stayed, she has never left school for uh, as long as we've been living back in Brooklyn. She has stayed in her community with her friends. And that's because I've really sought out work that would keep me at home. And so, you know, a lot of this theater, greatest showman, these are opportunities that I was very excited about. And they also, and then doubly excited because they've really worked for my family. Yeah. And again, same with Fosse. There I am and I get to work at home. I know exactly where I'm going to be for the next six months. And connecting Cabaret, Greatest Showman and Fosse Verdon. I mean, would you have ever imagined, let's say, you know, a few years even just before Cabaret that you would be putting yourself out there singing and dancing and doing stuff that, I mean, it doesn't seem like that was the trajectory. No, absolutely not. You know, but I did, you know, the first, like I said, the first thing that I ever saw that made me want to act was a kid's musical production. So there was something in me that was inclined in that direction and that was sort of maybe secretly waiting or hoping. And there's a lot of joy in singing and dancing. When you sing and you dance, you feel like a child, you feel free. There's so much going on that you don't really have time to think critically because you are absorbed in rhythm and melody and time passes. Yeah. With Brokeback, I think your character ages, I don't remember how many years, but not as long as... No, not as long as Glenn Verdon. No. From 1955, I guess, when she and and Fosse meet until 87, when he literally like dies in her arms. So 22 years. Was that aspect of it intimidating or exciting or what? Oh, completely. And I didn't have a good handle on exactly how much aging would be taking part over mm-hmm. this series. So when these scripts are, I thought it was maybe just like one flash to the future. Right. And then these scripts were showing up and I thought, oh God, I've never wanted to do this. I'm way too intimidated by this. I don't know how to be older than I am. I haven't been older than I am, <laughs> but I had no choice because I was already working on the job. So there we go. But what I, so I collaborated with the, uh, uh, Nicole Bridgeford did my hair, Jackie Rosado did my makeup, and we became thick as thieves. And we were just detail obsessed and uh, had so much affection for each other that we could withstand this kind of interrogation of how how does this person look? Like, what? Nope, that's too much. Nope, that's too little. Put the eyebrow back, take it away, shade it over here, diminish the bag by one fourth. You know, we were we were obsessed and we were a team. So we created her, uh, her, her physicality together. And we had, we also had the benefit of a very long rehearsal period, lots of dance lessons, and it was immersive. But even when you're dancing, I mean, you were sometimes dancing as her dancing as an old lady showing what she had done when yeah. she was a young, like there's just so many layers yeah, to so it. That many are, layers. What a great part. Yeah. What a part. And an Emmy, which is nice. Uh, okay, so this brings us to a great movie that people are catching up on now and have been for, I guess, about a month. Um, Fablemans, you are like the rest of us in lockdown, I guess. And unlike the rest of us, get a message that Steven Spielberg would like to speak with you, even for someone who's been in the business for a long time and worked with a lot of great people. What's what's that you know like to hear? I couldn't speak. I saw the text on my phone. I thought my eyes weren't working. I had to show it to my husband to see if he could confirm what I thought I was looking at. And then we started sort of jumping up and down and (laughs) dancing around the room in a middle-aged way. And (laughs) and then the next day I was like, there I was on this Zoom with Stephen, not really knowing why or for what. And then it dawned on me at the midway point what he was asking me to do. And I got tears in my eyes and I got bravery in my gut. And I said, are you 
asking me what I think you're asking me to do, which is to play your mother. He said, oh, yes, 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 yes. That's what I'd like. That's what I'd like very much. And then the work began. It's almost a nauseating feeling. Like I think back on it now, (laughs) there's like a moment of elation and jubilee when, you know, something beyond your wildest dream comes true. And then you get sick to your stomach because the... I guess the stakes are so high. Stakes are so high and the material is so glorious and it's in your lap and you have to do something with it. So his mother was... Leah Adler, you're Mitzi Fableman, but there's no question. This is basically right down to the hairstyle and her sort of eccentricities and way of being, which um, I, I mentioned before. I don't know if, if you ever, uh, <laughs> not. there's not a lot of people who necessarily even know this, but she had a deli in or a restaurant in um, West Hollywood, which anyone could go to. She's a very proud Jewish mother who's got her son's photos all over the world. He just happens all over the room. It just happens that he's Steven Spielberg and the daughter's photos and everything were there. And she would come and go from table to table. And, you know, I would not say that I uh, knew her well, but you got a sense of what she was like. And I think that that only makes me more appreciate how, you know, ballsy the performances because she was eccentric and somebody who doesn't necessarily have any background on her that, you know, whatever they, I think it just makes it even more uh, amazing. The, the kind of big swing that you took, was that ever something though? Like how far do I go with this? Like, cause you're, you're looking, I assume at photos and videos and right. What, What did you have to work with? Oh, so much. We had so much available material, but you're right. She had a restaurant and it was her stage. She was a performer. She always deserved a movie. Yeah. Um, she is, she's big screen sized. <laughs> right. And uh, yeah, we had so much to go from both, uh, you know, sort of historical documents, photos, the the home movies, the clips of her laughing, and then the personal recollections of Stephen and his sisters. Who all were kind of available to answer questions or whatever. Yeah. What was your kind of conclusions about her based on all of that? Was there, was she someone who you even could relate to personally? Was there something about her balancing or way of looking at her life versus her family's life versus, you know, just what was your, what was your take on her? I, I still, you know, the day that this movie wrapped after, which was my last scene in the movie was the last day of shooting on the movie. And I cried so much that they thought something had happened to me because my grief was so outsized. I'm in my forties. I've made a lot of movies. I know that they come to an end and yet there I was so hysterical, so inconsolable. And it was because I was going to miss, I was going to miss everyone and, and everything. And I was just, and I was going to miss getting to live as this woman who was voracious in her insistence that her life belonged to herself and that she make each day, really even each moment, this kind of joyous, exuberant, lived out loud experience. I was going to miss how brightly her light burned. And of course, there was a, there's an opposite to that because you can't burn that brightly and not have to have moments where you go, have to go very deep to recharge. So she had both qualities, but her laugh, her leaning into the forward space, her leaning into other people. She touched everything and everyone. She caressed the table in front of her. She held your face. She held her own face. Her laugh grew 
in size as her enjoyment of the joke did. You never had to wonder how she felt. She had the kind of energy that makes the world go round. And I know, you know, it's interesting that aside from Stephen, you got Seth Rogen here who you'd been in a... <laughs> 2000, he was in a 2003 yes, episode been of Dawson's Creek. That, well, that oh, was the Take This Waltz yep. and Dawson's Creek. So like once a decade, it seems like you guys uh, get back together. But um, then you've got the young Steven, Sky Gabriel LaBelle, who's, who's in there, and uh, Paul Dano. And I guess Steven has said, as you've, you're well aware, but like just coming out and seeing you guys in the time period and costumes and all of it, it was so moving because he's basically got his family back, right? Is it weird to be, or I don't know if weird's the right word, but jarring, scary when the, it would be probably scary to be in any Steven Spielberg movie, let alone playing his family right in front of him a few feet away, right? You know, it it was for about a minute. And then you realize that you're standing opposite this man whose generosity and emotional availability is at the core of his being. And there's nothing you have to work through to access Steven Spielberg. There's no guard at the gate. And so you are experiencing just deep human-to-human -human contact and you are in a very vulnerable space with him, but you're in a very safe space with him. And it was a magical time. It was a spell was cast over all of us. We knew how precious this, precious this story was, both to Stephen and to us as the conduits. And we knew that it wasn't going to last forever. And so each day on set was momentous and treasured. When the movie premiered at Toronto, I think you were very pregnant. But Hugely pregnant, up. but I wasn't. But I was showing yeah. up. I wasn't going to miss this. No. I've been doing this for thirty years. Right. You think I'm going to miss my Steven Spielberg, Spielberg <laughs> premiere? Well, that uh -uh. night—that was a pretty. I mean, to be in the audience was was an experience. What was that night and the response to it, which was pretty tremendous, like for for you? I don't know if this is the Michelle in me or the mama in me, but to see Steven, you know, like the, the mama, the, the <laughs> Leah in me, the Mitzi in me, but to right. see Steven with that warmth coming towards him and that deep appreciation for the movie, I was, I was such a proud mama that night. Yeah. One of the unusual things that sort of people are asked to, to figure out, I guess, to an extent during when they do great work and this time of year is the whole uh, awards situation, which you've been part of many times. This time there was an assumption made by a lot of people out, out of the gate mm -hmm. that Michelle is not only going to be competing as the, you know, in the category of supporting actress or whatever, um, but, you know, it looks like a pretty done deal like this uh, everybody was very responsive to your performance and that's a that's a sometimes it's just like from the beginning a fait accompli or whatever they say um and then people <laughs> were notified that that's not happening you are um you you want to be in the lead actress category and there's an argument for that as well and i just wonder as as weird as it is probably to talk about just because it's something that was widely discussed. Um, you know, what was it that made you say, you know, even if it is theoretically a, a, a gimme might be too strong a word or whatever, <laughs> but like why make, why take the harder route? The Michelle Williams story. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Um, I look, I believe in the hard road my whole yeah. life. I I believe in I believe in the hard road. I believe in the long road. Right. And so that's just my nature and I go where it leads me. And I know that you, for myself and for the people making this movie, 
it had, there wasn't a switch that we ever made. And my experience of making this movie, of reading this script, of understanding these scenes, of preparing these scenes, of filming these scenes, and of the scenes which are all still in the movie, that is, that feels to me related to the other work that I done, that I have done, which has been seen as a lead of a film as opposed to a supporting part in a film. I've done both. I hope to continue to do both for the rest of my, my life. But the size and scope of it didn't feel to me like Manchester by the Sea mm -hmm. and, or Brokeback Mountain. Mm -hmm. And so the being authentic to that sensation is more important to me and to the people that uh, made this movie with me. And if they were to look at the call sheet, I believe you were where? My name was at the top. Right. So... So lastly, and I so appreciate all your time here, I guess we've gone over, like, as you said, what is it, 30-something years of yeah. <laughs> work. Can you, part A, can you believe it's been that long? And part B, is there anything specific that you still, you know, that's on the to-do list? Or is it just a matter of uh, keeping it going? You know, I have to say, I find myself in a strange situation and I haven't worked since I made Fablemans. I did have another baby. So I was busy with that. Thank yeah. you. But I don't know exactly where to go from here. I'm so, I'm still so satisfied. I'm still so full from that experience that some part of me just isn't totally ready to move on. It was seminal. It was... And none of it was lost on me at the time. I, I appreciated every single day so fully. So it's not that I want to go back and do it all over again because I know how present I was for it. But it filled me up. And now I have two very small children and an almost grown daughter. So there's, you know, lots to keep me busy with. And... I can't, I can't see exactly what's ahead. Nothing wrong with that. Well, thank you for all the great work that we've been talking about. Thank you for doing this. And, yeah, uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in.